So I know it's obvious, but I'll, I'll say anyway. Um, my <coughs> intention in, in the teachings and, and, and the talks um, is really to, in a way, give as detailed and as practically helpful as possible an outline of how a meditator who wants to can uh, deepen and discover for themselves uh, in, in a way, discover emptiness, the seeing of emptiness, the palpable sense of emptiness in a way that brings freedom, that brings quite uh, you know, deeper and deeper radical freedom. And, and uh, gradually, or at some point, really does alter the whole sense of existence, the whole sense of life and death, that that kind of freedom is available. So really what that's what I want to be uh, offering is, is th- these are pathways, uh, and they're well-worn, and they work. They really work. The other day, or I think it was in the question and answer period, and Bruce um, mentioned a story of the Buddha, which is actually in the Pali Canon. I couldn't find the reference. I have it written down, but I, c- I couldn't find it exactly where it is. It may be somewhere in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Ang- Nikaya. But anyway, so I'll paraphrase uh, the story. The Buddha was hanging out one day uh, with, with a group of monks, I believe. And he said, monks, listen. You might have a stride, a step, that, uh, I'm paraphrasing, you might have a stride or a step that is, uh, you know, the length of the whole continent of India or something, or the length of the whole earth or something. But, and even with that, such a stride, if you kept walking for a hundred kalpas, a hundred eons, you know, stage, you know, evolutions of the universe, that long, with that large a stride, you wouldn't come to the end of the world. But, unless one sees the end of the world, one does not know liberation. And then, if I remember rightly, he excused himself and went into his kuti and shut the door. (laughs) 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 And, um... Someone, I don't think it was Ananda, or so, I think it was Mahakasapa or someone, the monks were scratching their um, bald heads and, and saying, what on earth does that mean? And so it was left to this other, more senior monk to explain it. So this is what I want to go into this evening. What does that mean? What does, it, what does the end of the world mean, and what relevance does it have to this, and to our practice, sort of riddle-like, cryptic statement of the Buddha? So few, a few different, sort of three different parts, well, quite a few different parts, but at least three big ones tonight. So uh, We've been talking about dependent arising, and John has talked about it, and I've, I've mentioned it as well. To me, dependent arising is a teaching that one can take on a number of different levels, or it's better to say one can deepen and deepen one's understanding of it, and look at it in certain ways, and become much more subtle or gross, etc. It's also... Uh, in a way, it's got different dimensions, so to speak. So we can follow the usual classical 12-step route, which John has gone over with you, right? Yeah. But it, it also has other kind of 
other ways of going about it as well. I will I will look at the twelve steps uh, in in and certainly some of their subtlety as well. But so another way of or another facet of dependent arising is to say that things arise uh, in terms of rel- relative to something else or in opposition to something else. So again, in the whole realm of dualities, which is what I want to start start talking about, dualities. Dualities, opposites, and relativity, and that also is a dimension or a level of understanding dependent arising. It has less to do with the sort of, well, at first it seems to have less to do with the classical 12 steps. This is from a text of Nagarjuna called the Ratnavali. When there is this, that arises. Just as when there is short, there is long. When there is short, there is long. When there is left, there is right. You understand? You can't have short without long. You can't have left without right. You can't have up without down. Yeah? They arise as uh, a pair of mutually dependent opposites relative to each other. So, as such, because they are mutually dependent opposites relative to each other, they actually lack inherent existence. They can't exist by themselves on their own, independently of that opposition and relativity to, to the opposite. And so they're empty. When let's extend this. It's like here and there. Same, right? Here and there. Same. Depend on each other. Uh, empty of inherent existence. Beautiful and ugly. Uh, even such a generality and a particular also depend on each other. So we can talk about dependent arising and sort of the the arising, what causes the arising of um, things is, is uh, impermanent products, so to speak. But there's this whole other dimension of dependency on um, the surrounding conditions, so to speak, and the way the mind conceives, the way the mind conceives. So, when we look at this in terms of the way perception of anything works, the occurrence, the experience, the perception, the thingness of anything, actually ends up involving aspects of what it is not, in relationship to something else. So, uh, aspects like location or time relative to these aspects of other things. Do you understand? This, this, this is here in relationship to something else. This, this is now in relationship to something else, or then in relationship to something else. Um, but things like color, or pitch, or temperature, weight, density, all these things, they're relative, relative to something else. Relative to other things, those aspects of other things. So, we can say dependent arising is about causes and conditions which give rise to something. <coughs> but also there's this other dimension, which things are what they are, we could say, by virtue of what they are not. Do, do you see? Is it all? I think so. Um, that was another way of saying what you just said. Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to say it in different ways so people get it. Yeah. Um, now, obviously we can interact with those things, but what it's saying is the thing, and actually ourselves too, the thing is not ever, cannot ever be, no thing can ever be independent of a context. Cannot be. Nothing exists independent of a context. 
So let's go into this a bit more. Dualities, dualities, and you know, teachings on non-dualities. This is a portion of teachings on non-duality. We say, in that sense, dualities, all these dualities I've gone into and, and many more, depend on each other. They depend on each other. Like I said, left depends on right, right depends on left. When we don't see that, or when we're not conscious of that, what the mind tends to do, in, in the deluded mind tends to do, is actually bring out, exaggerate the appearance of those dualities, uh, bring out the appearance uh, by our reaction to them, through our reaction to them, by push and pull. I like left, I like up, and automatically that brings out the whole polarity of left, right, up or down. It, it primes the way we're looking and actually brings out that sense when we when we believe that they exist inherently we relate to them in that way I want this, I don't want that and that push-pull that we've touched on already starts bringing out the appearance of things of that of that spectrum of duality so if we really think about this this has, this has an enormous effect in our life you cannot actually get away from this so what about the duality of silence and noise? We do this with that. We, we draw out noise when we say, I like silence. I like being on retreat. I like it when things go quiet. And that will actually draw out the whole duality, the left, right, up, down of silence and noise. Uh, something, tiredness and brightness of mind, same thing. Don't like tiredness or I want brightness. And it actually draws out both ends, the one that I like and the one that I don't like draws it out to perception. Happiness and sadness. Agitation and calm. These are all the preoccupations of human beings, but especially so of meditators. Uh, mindfulness and distraction. Actually a duality that lacks inherent existence because they are dependent on each other. We start, you know, two days into your first meditation retreat when you can't understand what what's being said about mindfulness, and we start, right, I'm going for that. And it highlights the, dis the whole spectrum, mindfulness and distraction. Illness and health, or we could say freedom from illness, also, also, that perception inside ourselves. Pain and pleasure, or pain and the absence of pain. All this, too, is, is, exists uh, dependently, not independently, we don't see that, and we draw this out as a perception to, to our consciousness. Again, stillness of mind, movement of mind. Aversion and acceptance. Uh, grasping and non-grasping. We can't get away from this. This, this is something that we uh, throw in with the whole mechanism of perception, you could say. Conceiving and non-conceiving. Again, all, all this, all this is something that we will be emotionally. All these are things we get emotionally invested in, and certainly as practitioners, we get emotionally invested. Should I be conceptual or non-conceptual? And then we make a big deal of one or the other, usually of non-conceptuality and wanting to be so-called non-conceptual, and we're highlighting something. Realization and delusion. Wisdom and ignorance freedom and bondage, etc. So it could go on and on and on. So the op so-called opposites are seized on uh, by, by the deluded mind and, and drawn out 
and when we don't see the emptiness, then we crave one and not the other. And that whole process reinforces the whole duality, the whole perception of duality, which reinforces the craving, which reinforces the perception of duality, and the whole thing is getting built like that. Let's take something like restlessness. Uh, fourth hindrance? Whatever. Anyway, it's a common human experience, a common human uh, state of mind, and certainly meditators know restlessness. When there is a state of mind of restlessness, the sense of here and there actually gets heightened, doesn't it? I'm, I'm here and I want to be there. <coughs> do, do you see how that gets stronger when there's a restless mind? That it actually highlights this sense of here maybe isn't good enough and I, I need to be there, wherever there is, maybe inside the meditation or want to get outside, whatever. Uh, restlessness also highlights now and later you see? Now and later. It highlights them, draws them out to perception, and gives them significance, and the whole thing spins around like that. And these opposite concepts lead to restlessness. Where there is a real sense of here and there, now and later, it's a, it's a breeding ground for restlessness. The mind will want to move. It has, it has something somewhere to move, conceptually. Does that make sense? So, but again, they feed each other. Restlessness brings here and there, now and later, now and later, here and there, bring mm. restlessness. Can't, so widespread in our life, think about a sense of loneliness versus a sense of togetherness. These are emotions we go through. And, and the way we see it and relate to it will, as, as a, not seeing the mutual dependency of these dualities, will draw them out. Feeling rejected and feeling loved. So these are the things we struggle with. Feeling rejected versus feeling loved. Feeling understood versus feeling misunderstood. These, these are things... Uh, choose your favorite here. What's, how many people have uh, so much of their suffering around feeling rejected versus feeling loved? How many people their suffering is around feeling understood versus feeling misunderstood? feeling lonely versus together. These are, for a lot of people, on a psychological level, they're core, core sufferings. They feel like core sufferings. And yet this, this uh, duality in the way the mind relates to that is actually a big part of building that. So they don't, uh, they don't have their roots in just a psychological level. Yeah, just a psychological. That's why it's never going to be enough, as human beings, to just address the, psycholog the psychological level. I said way back on retreat, it's like a tree. Psychological level is just the flowers, snipping the flowers. Very important, but not going to be enough. So we fabricate the deluded mind, not seeing this, fabricates. We could say, manufactures dualities, and again, desire for security. If I have a desire, when I have a desire for security, or to the degree that I have a desire for security in my life, whatever kind of security that is, financial security, whatever, that desire for security will breed the duality and actually feed feelings of insecurity. The whole notion of security goes with insecurity. The more I invest in security, the more... This, this goes for so much. Think about how we relate to money in our life, how we relate to owning a house and what will happen in, when we get old, etc. 
I'm not saying not to go for any of that, but just to beware. I pick up one end of the stick, and I have to be picking up the other end of the stick. Whereas, to borrow a phrase from Thich Nhat Hanh, if I don't like left, I say I don't like left, so I chop off the left, left side of the stick. Well, what's happened? I've still got a stick with a left and a right. <laughs> so I don't like left, so I chop it off again. I cannot get away from that. My very rejection of one side of a duality breeds the whole perception of dualities. I cannot get away from it that way. And this is important because, as, uh, certainly as lay people, you know, we think a lot about security. It's a, it's a big issue. One sees, obviously, the, um, the, the planetary effects of this, of a kind of unwise obsession with our security. Similarly, the desire for more, more, more what? More money, more this, more that. Desire for more, more and less. Another duality. Desire for more will feed fear of less. Can't get away from that. So, um, one might hear that and say, hmm, that's interesting, or, uh, yeah, I kind of see that, or I'm not sure about that, or whatever. But what, again, going back to what I said right at the beginning, what I want to communicate is practice, 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 practice. Can I bring that contemplation into the moment in practice and kind of look at dualities as they occur in practice with this understanding, kind of uh, in the looking? And then what happens? That's what I'm interested in. Because me saying what I just said in ten minutes is not going to make much difference to anyone's life. It's... it's uh, can I say ways of looking, ways of looking that bring freedom? That's what's going to. That's what's going to do it. That's what's going to let the coin drop into the heart and actually really start making a difference in our life over and over and over. So, in one of the Prajnaparamita texts, the uh, Perfection of Wisdom texts, um, as a as a well, it just throws it out there. But I, I feel most of the Prajnaparamita texts are actually meditation instructions in a way. Do not see fault anywhere, it says. Do not see fault anywhere. What would it be to sit in meditation with that way of looking? Not to see fault anywhere. And actually sustain that. And just drop the sense of fault. And drop the sense of fault. I like this. I don't like that. I don't like that. So many of you will know beautiful, beautiful... um, uh, beautiful quote from the third Zen patriarch, I think, uh, called Faith in Mind. Um, The supreme way is not difficult if only you do not pick and choose, or you could say for one who has no preferences. Supreme way is not difficult if only you do not pick and choose when love and hate are both absent, meaning grasping and rejection. Love and hate are both absent. Everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction between things, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. We're creating a world of dualities. We believe in it, we create it, and then we believe it even more. We have that sense of things, and then we suffer with it. So where there is long, there has to be short, and they do not exist through their own nature. In other words, they're empty. So again, what would it be to, to take that, to think it's the first stanza of that, um, that the, from the third Zen Patriot, of a very long, extremely beautiful and profound uh, 
verses called Faith in Mind. Really, really worth checking out. Um, lots of different translations of different sort of merits in different parts, but beautiful, beautiful text. But it's practice. It's not just something to say, oh, that's nice. It's practice. What would it be to practice sitting, walking in meditation? Practice in the moment, in, in the actual moment. No preferences, not picking and choosing. Actually bring that very much as a way of relating. And that, of course, uh, and I'm sure you recognize, has everything to do with our practices that we were talking about, holy disinterest. It's, it's the same thing. Same thing, uh, in what it would do is relax our relationship with things, but it's coming from a slightly different understanding about dualities and how we manufacture dualities and then fall for them and, and uh, get lost in them and in relationship to them. Could you read that face in mind? I'll post it. Yeah, I'll post it. I've got a little thing. I'll post it. Or I mean, I can also read it again. Would you prefer I read it again? Would you read it again? Yeah. The supreme way is not difficult if only you do not pick and choose. Or sometimes the supreme way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction between things, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. So it really is a very, very beautiful and deep text. Uh, I haven't come across one translation which I can get behind every verse of, but uh, I was hoping when when I find some time to kind of cobble together different <laughs> paragraphs there. But uh, anyway. Okay, dualities. Next little chapter of, of this talk. Remember I said to you, uh, please, I want you to notice what happens in these practices. So, so far, so far... What have we seen is dependent on clinging, so far in the practices and in, 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 the, in the talks and the teachings. So far, what we've seen is dependent on clinging. We've seen that suffering is dependent on clinging, right? That, that's fairly obvious by now, right? To the degree that I cling is the degree that I will suffer. Can everyone agree on that? Yeah. Self-sense is dependent on clinging. Yes? We've said that before, and, and people getting a sense of that? Yeah? When I really cling to something, the self-sense is stronger, more built up, more loud, more prominent. Less, less clinging, less self-sense. The substantiality of objects. That's when we're talking about this open awareness, and it's actually a state of non-clinging, and how uh, begins to uh, get a sense in that, that the less I cling, the less solid and substantial things appear. Yeah? There's... The perception of their substantiality is dependent on clinging. So far, so good? Okay. <laughs> Has anyone noticed? <laughs> Has anyone noticed that not only that, if you take it just a step deeper, a step more, has anyone noticed that actually the definition, I mean the sense of definition of a perception, or the very presence of an object to awareness, also depends on clinging. In other words, that when we let go of clinging and let go of clinging, uh, an object, a pain, or something in the body, or this or that, might actually begin to get somewhat diffuse, and fade, and dissolve a little bit. 
It happens through the allowing. Yeah, allowing is a lack of is a lessening of clinging, and then uh, the perception of kind of how clear things be can begin to blur, and sometimes even the thing that we are looking at begins to just disappear and fade. That's really putting your attention on it rather than say I've got a headache. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll just change. I'll just yes. So I'm talking about really looking at something, and particularly something that's bothering you. Let's say a headache. Let's say a pain in the knee, and just really trying to relate to it in, in one of some of the ways we've been talking about, whether it's the open awareness, whether it's this anatta, whatever. And I'm, I'm looking at this thing. I'm not, as Richard's suggesting, I'm not actually putting my mind on, uh, you know, a shopping list or something. I'm looking at this thing, and it begins to. How's that different? To- Insubstantial is the sense of solidity. In other words, the things st- when things might get less substantial, but it's still there as a clear sort of experience. Uh, uh, whereas what I'm talking about now, this kind of fading of the perception, is it's almost like it just blurs and dissolves and and eventually disappears. Even See, what I relate to when you say that is um, letting go the perception, letting go of the memory of whatever that perception is, whether it's the pain or not. Oh, I remember that 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 hurts me. Mm -hmm. You know, and then I go off on that. Or the mem... Maybe memory isn't the right word, but um, some pre-existing notion that I have of that object that is a clinging to name it or to do something. I would, I'd, say, I'd say that that exists, and it goes back to what Bruce brought up um, some time ago in the labelling coming a little later in the perception. I'm talking about something more primary than that, more primary even than the labelling. It's actually we're letting go. When we, when we, uh, when we let go of clinging, we're actually... Uh, that's what we're letting go of, rather than labelling as something. So I'm talking about actually relaxing the clinging in a, in a different way. Is it like when something goes from being flat to being like a sine wave. What, the experience? Mm. No. So this is interesting. Okay, very interesting. uh, How can you cling if you don't have... If you're clinging to a sense of self. We'll get to that, Diana, yeah. Clinging Mm. to a sense of self. Mm -hmm. And the thoughts... I mean, the pancha is um, self-involved, and Mm. you're aware of it. It disappears. The papancha, yeah, yes. absolutely, yes. The papancha will disappear too. I'm talking about even below the level of one second. I'm talking about even below the level of papancha. I'm talking about just what we would usually take as a direct experience. There's nothing to do with papancha. It's just a pain in my knee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Okay. Very. To me, with physical pain. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Oh, when I said memory, uh, sorry, I really meant association, I guess. I'm talking also deeper than that, deeper mm. than that. So, Nick? Well, uh, yeah, like a pain in, in my legs or my knees. It, some, sometimes, if I kind of go right, try to go into the sensation instead of you know, uh, being averse to it and go into it, it um, so, to some extent it seems like yeah, it starts to dissolve, but then it comes back, and then I do it, you know, just kind of 
So to some extent, it'll it'll go it'll go, but then if I sit long enough, it'll always it always it seems like it always wins and the pain comes back. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but it, if I sit, you know, for whatever mm. length of time, mm. so it's not like it ever goes away. Mm. <coughs> Completely. Well, if one has really a little physical pain, if there's. Exactly, and if, if one has some physical pain. So yeah. a little physical pain, because clearly most of the people in this room are very comfortable with their sitting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, to, to me, sorry, guys, so, this is the fourth, this is this is interesting to me. Um, is it, Rob, like the, the heat thing I mentioned to you, is that what you're referring to? Yes. Look, several people have mentioned this in interviews. I had a headache. It went away when I when I just found a way of relating it with three characters. Virginia had a heat thing. Someone else had a knee pain. Someone else had a. So, so people have mentioned this to me. Uh, this is a kind of turning point in the retreat, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so, um, uh, so what I'm talking about is so far. If we go right back to the beginning, I said three characteristics. They're a starting point. They're 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 something to develop. And I said you know they're not an end point. It's not just we've got to accept that the world is impermanent and blah 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 blah. It's like we take them because they're they're avenues of they're ways of non clinging, right? They're they're practices of non clinging. And as we develop that, you begin to see uh, more and more. You begin to see, as I said, suffering goes down, self sense goes down, substantiality. And as we deepen it, one will also see that uh, the very perception of things also uh, is dependent on those. Have you noticed this, Mark? You have. Um, Okay, some some people have seen it, some people haven't, but does... Uh, I still think it's important. I, I would like to proceed, if that's okay. I haven't seen it, but it makes sense to me. So. Okay, good. <laughs> that helps. So, Nick, what you're talking about is exactly exactly what I'm talking about. The fact that it came back is not um, is neither here nor there. It comes back when the clinging comes back. In a sense, I'll, I'll, I'll try and explain more. It doesn't feel like that to me. I mean, it feels okay. like a physical constraint on your body. Which yeah, is. sure. Okay, so. Um, but I did notice when I was really feeling the calms of the open uh, awareness that it did go through. And I was finding I was sitting for quite a long time, which I haven't, a lot longer than you know, I would normally. Mm. So I'm talking about um, this is good. So th- it's great. The thing about this is it's it's a really really important insight. I, I I feel it's absolutely crucial and it's often overlooked. In other words, I, no one has ever come to me and said anything more than that's it w- or reported it as an incident. I've never had anyone come to me and draw out the insight of it. And to me, there's huge insight here. So um, some people have seen it. Some people may have seen it over and over and over again to the point where it's absolutely clear there's a relationship here. When I cling, it forms perception. So when we talk, talk, I don't know what it was. What we're going to get into is the emptiness of things, of perceptions, and how the mind, the deluded mind, builds perception, builds a perception of a thing. Okay. Um, so some people may have seen it, as I said, loads of times. It's really clear. It's obvious there's a relationship. There. It's like a scientific experiment. I just do it, it goes. I do it, it goes. I do it. Or actually, I let go of something and it goes. I let go of something and it goes. A visual part of that. Uh, y- what yes, yes. Um, so, and some people may have glimpsed it and not quite realized it's significant. Some people it hasn't, it hasn't 
kind of it's not an experience they've had yet. It's all fine. It's all fine. I still want to present it, as I said at the beginning of the talk, talking about ways that this can go really deep in meditation. So it, it's not so important if you feel like, well, I haven't had that yet, or, or whatever. I would like to highlight it because, as I said, to me it's, it's pointing to an absolutely crucial and profound insight, which is very rarely picked up on fully. So... It's one thing to say, I have this experience, let's say, a, a pain in my knee. And I'm sitting in meditation, and it disappears. And then it comes back, and then it disappears. It's one thing to say, the conclusion is, things are impermanent. It's true, things are impermanent. What do I conclude from that? That the, object, that the location of things is impermanent? Is that the right conclusion? It's true, the location of things is impermanent. I think I'm missing something, if, I, if that's all I conclude. I'm dropping, what are these things called? Whatever they're called. I'm dropping this thing. <laughs> Do you get where I'm going with this? I'm missing an insight. What's the insight? Gravity. Gravity. It's not just that it's impermanent. So something disappears. A perception uh, disbands. A perception dissolves, a perception fades. It's not just that it's impermanent. There's something else going on here. That's why I was asking you to see the connections, see the connections. So see the connection to clinging. The less we cling, the less we build experiences. So if, if I have an experience and I find that if I can look at it and really work on the way of looking, I've been talking about three characteristics, etc., really look at it, and through that way of looking, way of relating, relax the clinging, there's a good chance that it will... Fade, dissolve, disband. In this example, where is the clinging? Uh, uh, no, this isn't about clinging. This is about uh, uh, this is physics, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> right, but the the point is, if I see something, if I see something disappearing, it disappears. Things, are, it's not just that things are impermanent. That's not just what the Buddha was getting at. So things come and go, dependent on causes and conditions. That understanding is a much fuller understanding. So, what's the, you know, it's not just that experiences are impermanent, it's that we need to understand dependent arising here. We need to understand dependent arising. I don't know, has John said, where does perception come in in the, in the wheel of dependent arising? It doesn't. It, it comes in the aggregates, but not, it's the one that's missing in the I would say, I mean, the, the Buddha said, what is Nama Rupa, the fourth link? He said, perception, uh, intention, Vedana, attention, etc. It's part of the fourth, the fourth link in dependent arising. So it's very much part of... of uh, so when the Buddha's talking about dependent arising, he's talking about dependent arising of a lot of things. Suffering, self-sense, but more subtly, the dependent arising of perceptions. Okay? So, what's the conclusion here? Uh, seeing this, and again, one needs to see it over and over again, ask the right questions, and make the right connections. A thing or a perception is actually dependent on clinging. Dependent on clinging. When I cling a lot, that thing is prominent and clear, and this is that thing. And when I cling less, it begins to unfold. So, as a, some of you may have seen it a lot, some less so, but it's, it's something really worth, um, really, really worth pursuing in meditation, this connection. It's just what you... The more you kind of focus on it. The more you kind of focus on it, what? The more you focus on it, the more um, 
the perception increases? Well, it depends, going back to something Diane asked ages ago, depends what's with the focus. The focus is another word for attention. If there's clinging with attention, it will get stronger. If I can find a way of paying attention to something, as Richard was saying, if I can find a way of paying attention to something and actually relaxing the clinging at the same time, are you becoming wholly disinterested? Yeah, but wholly disinterested doesn't mean in the, it, so far it doesn't mean not paying attention to it. It's a, it's a it's a way of uh, te- looking at something, but taking away the clinging that usually goes in my looking, with my looking unseen, wrapped up in my looking. So, it yeah, like I said, it's it's somehow we have to account for the fact. Uh, if you're going by the teachings, if you're, if you're, so people go the whole project here in very different ways. Some people, it's like, well, the Buddha said this, so I have to kind of understand what he meant by that. If that's the way, then I have to, I have to find a way of explaining what he means by perception as being part of the fourth link, and what does it mean when he says this arises dependent on, and ceases dependent on. Okay. Now. I don't know if John has gone into this. Dependent arising is not linear in time, is it? We we touched on this, right? Every link affects every other link. So clinging actually comes later. It comes, I don't know what number, six or seven or whatever it is. Clinging and craving, right? They feed back. Every every node in dependent arising has uh, a web to every other node. So clinging affects perception. Technically, at least what we have from the suttas doesn't really go into that in so much, doesn't pull that out of a traditional way of explaining dependent arising. But sometimes people will go, well, hmm. You know, I remember years ago when I lived in America and being part of a sitting group and um, someone saying, reporting different experiences of meditation, and someone saying, well, obviously what's happening is when you meditate, the, the chemistry of the brain or the neural connections is being affected and you're getting distorted perceptions of things, obviously. Um, but that's interesting. A person can sit in meditation and think, well, what am I actually doing? All I'm doing is paying attention plus letting go of, a cling- letting go of clinging. And letting go of clinging, as we've said, is actually a non-doing. So I can hardly claim that I'm somehow distorting my perception there by letting go of clinging, or distorting the chemistry and neurology of my brain. If, even if you haven't seen this so far, let, remember I said uh, a couple of times, this is all one insight, it's all one thread of insight. When we have a tantrum about something, when we're in a tantrum about something, something's really upset us, whether it's uh, porridge or whatever it is, <laughs> something has upset us, and really upset us, and we're really, and what's there? Suffering is there, self-sense is there, etc., etc. Also, the thing that we are upset about is really prominent in consciousness. It's really, boom, standing out. It's really, isn't it? And then we let go of the tantrum, and it just becomes part of the of the totality of our day and our experience. It's what's it doing? It's fading, even more, even more, even more. And then you get to this subtle level of meditation. It actually disbands as an experience. It fades. Okay, it's actually one from the completely everyday non-meditative observation of this, all the way down to really uh, what takes quite a lot of skill and depth and subtlety in meditation. So interesting. If you are bored. What happens, have you ever tried when you're bored, or if you ever get bored, to try and become more bored? What happens? 
What happens if you're fearful? Remember, I, was, uh, I used to be a musician, and someone was saying, sharing with someone about stage fright, and he tries to get more fearful. He's got to go on stage in five minutes and do his thing, and his palms are sweating, and his heart. They actually try and get more fearful. What happens? The opposite happens. Trying to get more fearful actually quietens the fear. Trying to get more bored actually quietens the fear. Why is that? I can't do it that way because by trying to become more, I'm actually, what am I doing? I'm relaxing the, the default aversion to those things, boredom and fear. And they, they depend on, on the aversion in this case. So doing the opposite, the whole thing just drains. Those things need aversion. We touched on this when a couple of people near the beginning were asking about fear. He said, be much more spacious and really welcome it. What's happening there? I'm letting go of aversion. And the experience begins to disband. So when we say clinging in, the, in this context, we, we mean push and pull, like we've said. So, if we, if we just sum up and pull a few things together, clinging, meaning the push and pull, aversion and grasping, plus, uh, we could say, taking things as me or mine, appropriating things, okay, uh, including identifying with the knowing of things, identifying with consciousness. So, me-mining, me-mining, clinging, me-mining, and conceiving of the inherent existence of things. So, for example, if we go back to the duality thing, that gets very subtle. It gets much more subtle than the duality thing. So there's a lot to say, and we'll fill out what does that mean. Uh, so clinging, we say me-mining, or selfing, and delusion are all part of what builds perception. Do you, do you understand? They all... You guys still with me? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have a bit of a problem with that light, but I don't... With the candle? No, no, this one. This is... So say I, I would I would rather um, I'm fine but I would rather uh, have a sense that I'm okay so yeah it's it's important because like I said the talk is a dependent arising right it's not me giving the talk it's not me giving it what did you say they all build perception perception meaning the experience of objects as things as objects as a thing. So, if we, if we relate this to dependent arising, again, we've got every link feeding every other link. In, ignorance is, and we haven't even gone into what ignorance means in a totality, we'll, we'll expand that. Ignorance is feeding perception. Just, just take what I started the talk with, dualities. Not the ignorance about seeing that dualities are lacking inherent existence. That will feed the perception of the dualities of the things. Uh, Me-mining and clinging. Okay? And you could map them in different places on, on the on the wheel of dependent arising. Uh, nidanas. Has John used that word with you yet? Nidana? No? Okay. It means, um, well, it has a lot of meanings. One of the meanings is, is links. There are causes, con conditional causes. So oftentimes the wheel of dependent origination is called the 12 nidanas, the 12. It gets translated as links, but it also actually means the 12 causes, because everything's feeding everything else. So. If I can find a way, remember I'm talking about meditative skill here, meditative skill, meditative possibility for everyone, meditative possibility for everyone, less and less clinging in the moment in relationship to something, less and less delusion in the moment in relationship to something, causes or allows uh, a, a kind of 
lessening of the object of perception. We could say, and uh, we could say, we are withdrawing the elements that we usually feed in that fabricate perception, and so perception is getting unfabricated. We usually fabricate, or sankara, to sankara, to fabricate, to concoct. That's what that word means. To put, to, it literally means to, to make together, to put together. We, it's a verb, it's a doing. We sankara. Out of delusion, we sankara. It's not just a noun. We sankara things, we fabricate things, we concoct perception. Does that make sense? So, if they don't fade, actually, and this, this uh, appreciate Nick's point, but... Um, uh, and let's say there are constraints. We'll say we won't, at this point, we won't dismiss that. There are constraints. But just to expand the poss- sense of possibility here, if they don't fade, oftentimes, so for example, let's take our uh, thingy again. Gravity, right? Oh. Oh. Maybe, maybe gravity, maybe gravity doesn't exist then. I'm putting it on the cushions. Right? That's the conclusion, right? Gra- gravity obviously can't be true, because... No, there's something in the way. There's something in the way, right? <laughs> Who has physics O-level? <laughs> okay. There's something in the way. So if, if it doesn't fade, and we won't, we won't argue with Nick at this point, absolutely, because it's important to say there are, there are constraints on this. But if something doesn't fade, uh, it's usually that, let's say, identification or clinging is hidden there at a more subtle level. And oftentimes, what it will be is identification with consciousness. And I said, right, when we're talking about three categories, that's a much subtler level to be able to disidentify from. And one will find, if one's able to disidentify with awareness, a dramatic impact on the nature of perception. Because at that point the identification is not on, on any of the objects of awareness or on awareness itself. It's actually let go in relationship to the khandas, and that has a dramatic effect on perception. You're using awareness and consciousness. S- synonymously, Synonymous. yeah, synonymously, yes. yes. Uh, so if it doesn't fade, and it won't sometimes, of course, uh, it's either that we haven't quite been able to let go, or that we ha- there, are, there is some clinging that we haven't f- usually often identification with awareness. Uh, or something else we haven't seen the emptiness of. So, going back, similar question I asked in relationship to the self when we talked about the self-sense quietening with the three characteristics. How much clinging, how much identifying, how much delusion reveals the real thing? I'm not talking about Coca-Cola, just the real thing. How much the real world a lot of clinging, a lot of delusion, a lot of identifying, this much. Less, 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 and less appears, and less appears, less. How much is the real thing? Second question, or second thing to see, is that without clinging, without identifying, we have to see this a lot, you have to really experiment with this, and really kind of, uh, it's one thing to hear it from, from me or someone else, it's another thing to really see it over and over again, as I said, like a scientific experiment in, in the kind of depths of uh, meditative investigation. But to see that... I apologize, but you made a statement I'm struggling with, 
said that if it doesn't disappear, then yeah. we're clean. If it doesn't disappear, yeah, if it okay. It doesn't fade, we're mm -hmm. clean. Mm -hmm. You're not fading, and I'm not clinging to you. Okay, yeah. Um, I will get to that later in the retreat, if you don't mind. That There's there's a subtlety of what I'm going to mean by clinging. And there's also... Um, uh, how to say this? Um, can I just say we'll revisit that, because it's it's quite an important... Um, quite an important question. Does that feel Okay. Yeah. So what I what I would rather for now is that um, you look at this in meditation, in terms of meditation experience, and uh, and just feel for yourself what's happening, and then and then we'll rev hopefully revisit that as as people get more of a sense of it, and uh, and uh, yeah, and that's an important question. So what you're saying, everything you're saying, we should be applying to the cushion and not to. Yes, that's, that's, and so I clumsily tried to say that at the beginning of the talk. What I'm talking about, most of my talks are about meditation. They're about, they're about the practice of meditation, the cushion, the walking room, etc., the, the time, you know, the standing, everything, and, and you will find a way of carving something out there, the implications of which will apply all day long uh, to whatever you're doing. But imp important, yeah. Um, and, and then uh, the other thing is to say delusion is a spectrum. Identification is, in other words, we can, like I said, there's subtle forms of identification. The identification with consciousness is very subtle. We don't, we're not usually aware that's going on. Clinging can be very, very subtle. We'll even talk about how attention has a kind of quality of clinging in it automatically. It's like it does that around its object. Um... Clinging, even yeah. So all of this, all of this spectrum, spectrum. I use this concept a lot. Everything's a spectrum. But what I see that without clinging, identification, delusion, a thing doesn't appear or it doesn't exist, so to speak. So what that the implication of that is, it exists. It doesn't exist. Let's say it doesn't exist independent of the mind. Perception uh, doesn't exist. This thing to my consciousness, this experience, does not exist. Inherently, as the way we usually sense it, it sense it existing inherently, it actually does not exist independent of my mind and the mind's relationship with it. There's a beautiful uh, quote from Meister Eckhart, who's a, who's a Dominican uh, monk and teacher in the 11th century, I think, or around then, uh, really, really in the sort of Christian tradition, one of the sort of towering mystics, he said, the, the creature, the creature does not exist, he said. The creature does not exist, meaning that which is created. The creature does not exist. So, uh, to go back to this spectrum concept, uh, so we, what we said is, without clinging, it doesn't, appear, it doesn't exist independent of the mind and the mind's relationship to it. If we think of the these kind of nodes of dependent arising, these nidanas, if we think of them as kind of uh, not so much on-off switches as more like, um, someone's used the example, it's, it's like these things. You know poker chips? Uh, you know those things you, you get? Yeah? <laughs> I've never ever been inside a gambling, but uh, <laughs> seen it on uh, the films. Um, uh, poker chips. My stack of delusion can be really high, can be much lower, it can be much lower. And to the height that is, similarly with my stack of clinging, to the height that is so high, 
will be the stack in the perception stack. You understand? And what I'm just saying is the more delusion there is, the more it tends to build the solidity of perception. The more clinging there is, the more it tends to build the solidity of perception. Um, and perception and Vedana as well. So remember, we, was it in the last question? I was in Be- it was Beth asking. So perception and Vedana are not separate. Not separate. So again, they're actually part of the fourth... Uh, the fourth Node of dependent arising, perception and Vedana. Perception and Vedana, not separate. In other words, uh, where there's uh, uh, an experience, there'll be the perception of that as an experience, and the Vedana associated with it. And that too will fade. That too will fade. And you talked about, uh, and I know only a few of you will pick it up right now, the chariot thing. And I talked about when you really do that, this kind of vacuity comes. Same deal. Same deal, because at that moment, the delusion is less. So the object disappears. Why is perception so vivid then when, um, when, you're, less, when you're in big mind? Why do things appear so... Yeah, um, I would say that will fade. So sometimes, you know, when we start meditating and we talk about mindfulness, etc., uh, what happens is we sort of that image I was talking about at one point of, of kind of scrubbing clean the doors of perception it's like, uh, actually really is valid. You know, we live with a veil of concepts and tiredness and sluggishness, etc. You start bringing mindfulness in and, and, uh, and the whole thing brightens up and everything does seem brighter. But it's, it's a bit like a bell curve. That's a physics term. Do you know what that means? <laughs> I'm teasing you. Uh, it's like this. So things start, you know, for meditators, they, they get more vivid. But you, you hang in there and you keep letting go and emphasizing letting go, and they will start to actually fade like that. It has actually, yeah. Okay. So that... that I just didn't know whether it was because well, I wasn't concentrating hard right. enough so, anymore. So that's exactly what I mean. It's rare for a person to actually extract... As I said, no one's uh, come to me and, and, and reported this and, and drawn the conclusions out of it. It's more like, oh, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, so, so that increase in, in vivid, the vivid nature of things is just a phase. It doesn't mean... Um, it doesn't mean you're clinging more, no. It's just yeah. a phase. So you actually, well, it's, it's a metaphor, but you actually are scrubbing clean at first in meditation. You know, you, we're used to so much junk and thoughts and conceptions and, uh, and distractions that you actually start m- making the mind, giving it more energy, more attention, less distraction, less gunk in the way, and things do start being much clearer. But that that's actually just a phase. Is it because you're getting used to it? You're getting used to the deception? No. It's because of this, what I'm talking about. It's because as you deepen in practice, you let go. And, 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 with, the, sorry, and with the letting go, letting go of clinging, and letting go of the factors in the wheel of dependent arising that are feeding the perception. Isn't and it spaciousness? Spaciousness is a way of letting go of clinging, yes. But is that the end result of what April's saying? It will also, as we let go of clinging, become more spacious. Yes, yes definitely. And with more spaciousness, we're actually able to let go more, and, and so it goes. So it goes. I'm sorry, so with the scrubbing clean, is it that you just get used to to the new window which you're looking through life at, or does it return to how you used to see? Do you see my... I do, but this, so this is interesting, so I'm not sure, um, so we could say one gets used to it, 
you could say uh, it returns to how it was, somehow there was just some kick in, or you could say that actually this decrease in the vividness, uh, that will ha- it will only happen at times, at times, and those times will be when we cling less. And that's, that's the, that's the, the there's, there's like, sorry, I'm not a scientist at all, but that's the, uh, that's what's in the data, you know. In the, in the experimental data, the less I cling, the less solid things appear. Yeah. <laughs> well, like a, okay. I'm so convinced. <laughs> well, the, the, uh, no, I mean, I get, I, I totally have had hugely, horribly vivid experiences of things disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's never at the same time as things being vivid. And actually... The vivid experiences, I don't seem to be having. I seem to be having disappearing experiences mm. now. So maybe it's just a, I'm just on that part of the cycle. I just need to stop thinking about it. No, you need to think about it more. <laughs> so, so this is interesting. This, a bit, but good. It's good. Um, <laughs> I need to think. Newton had to think about it. He had to think about it. what's going on there. It's not just that the position of things is impermanent. It's not just, oh, the cycle comes and goes, things get vivid and they get less vivid. I mean, yes, that goes on for other reasons too. But there's something else going on here, implicit in the data. And uh, if you're a scientific type, it's like, ferret that out, make the connections. Or you can try it for yourself, try it for yourself. Really look at something and find a way to let go of the clean, let go of the clean, let go of the clean. What happens to that thing? get very good at it. You can you can actually see that that uh, y- you can have a sense. De- that's why I said these practices are developed. You, I want you to develop them, develop them. You really get a sense of um, being able to move on that on that spectrum of more or less clinging and see what happens with it. See what happens with it. So take it and play with it rather than. So that I can play with it then. I don't I don't really understand why initially things appeared more vivid. Because um, usually we s- start meditation with um, with minds that are habituated to dullness, to tiredness, to distraction, to thinking, to con- preconceptions, etc., etc., etc. And then you hear someone talk about mindfulness or being present or whatever, and it's like learning to drop all that. And so, you know, we could say drop the grime, get rid of the grime on the windscreen, yeah. so things appear more vivid. And then, as one, deve- one can be mindful and one knows how to be mindful, then one moves, in a way, to a subtler level of me- meditation, which is not just an interest in mindfulness, which only takes you so far. They actually start to be an interest in dependent arising in the moment by being, making, letting go a priority and not just presence a priority. Yeah. And, and then I start to see, I start to, as I said, beginning the talk, so what happens when we let go? Self-suffering gets less, this gets less, self-sense gets less. So self-sense we can see. And now I'm going a step further. And remember I said dividing it into the emptiness of cells and the emptiness of phenomena. And there's a reason I did it in that order, because it's, it's easier to see. It's easier to see the, self, the self-sense get lower for us. harder to see meditatively phenomena too. But that's what we want to kind of get out of this. Yeah. yeah? To play with it, really, really investigate. You know, if, it's, if it turns out not to be that connection, then I want to hear about it. Um, I think also there's fear and clinging that that immediately comes in when you initially first see it. I mean, I remember when I... Sit. 
yeah. when you first see see what the, the vivid reality uh -huh. that life can be, uh -huh. immediately in me I was terrified mm. because it was so different. Mm -hmm. And I know that that terror was obviously because of clinging. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think... Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, it could be. could be, yes. All right. Hui mm Neng, -hmm. uh, sixth Zen patriot, very, very important teacher in, in uh, the Zen tradition. From the first, from the beginning, not a thing is. From the first, not a thing is. <laughs> Eventually, eventually, so so far what we've got is you do your three characteristics practice or the big awareness or whatever it is, and you begin to see these connections, you see the suffering, the self-sense, the substantiality, and eventually the thingness of things, the perception, begin to drain. You see it's dependent. And eventually, and I, I, here it's a, it's a, hard, it's a uh, not an easy sell I can <laughs> right now, but eventually you see it over and over again, over and over again, and that, that link gets really clear thing is dependent, as an experience it's dependent, and dependent is just another word of saying it's empty and eventually we're actually able to not just say uh, I'll try and relax my relationship with this thing, or I'll let go of my identification with this thing, or with the knowing of this thing, but eventually we've seen that it's dependent, therefore it's empty, and eventually we can look at the thing and say, empty empty Empty. I know you're empty. And the, the small print there is, I know you're empty because I've seen a gazillion times how you depend, as a thing, as a perception, on what is being fed in terms of clinging, delusion, selfing. So when I talked about, I threw it out, and probably didn't make much sense uh, when I threw it out, talked about these three characteristics being progressive practices. And one thing, you get an insight, and then that insight becomes the new platform to keep going. So suddenly, instead of uh, three characteristics, I'm letting go, I'm, le I'm learning to let go, get some insights from that, and that tells us about the nature of things. And I can then look at things and, and just know you're empty, you're empty. So instead of, for instance, not me, not mine, or let me relax the aversion, or whatever it is, I can just look at things and have a sense empty, empty. The whole thing starts shifting into another gear. The Buddha has a phrase, um, to, to meditative, meditative instruction, actually, uh, to regard things as empty of self or what belongs to a self, or sometimes to regard things as just a perception. Whatever is coming up is just a perception. It's just a perception. And again, they can have different sub-meanings of that. If one does that, one, one's uh, experience will be and sustains that way of looking. That way, we've evolved a way of looking, or we can evolve. If one does that, uh, things will begin to fade and start moving. You don't need to know this, but eventually you'll end up in the uh, seventh or eighth jhana, actually, the realm of nothingness, or neither perception or non-perception. Why? Because there are dimensions or there are states where uh, a lot has faded, a lot, a lot, a lot has faded, and one's ended up with nothing. Why? Because one's looking at things in a way that's not supporting their thingness and the perception of their thingness. And, and I think I threw this out maybe even in the Samadhi talk, is possible, it becomes possible, to a degree, to a degree, uh, there are limits here, to a degree, to actually, when one has an unpleasant sensation in the body, 
to actually learn to see it as empty and then color it a different way. I'll decide to see, I have this pain in my head, I'll decide to see it as pleasant. And just one sees that the nature of perception is a lot more malleable because it's empty implies malleability to a certain extent.
or maybe just a sense of stillness, or one says it's just emptiness, or it's just peace, or whatever. I could even do it on that. I could keep going. I could keep going. So there's a Nagarjuna quote that I quoted a while ago. The true nature of things is peace. The true nature of things is peace. Actually, peace can also be an object for the mind. One can go beyond the sort of experience of peace as well. Yeah, once you start realizing, or once you start finding that when we relax the clinging or the identifying or whatever else it is in relationship to things, that experience fades, it can be that the mind of aversion, uh, when it's there, starts to actually try and just get rid of things that way. And basically, uh, it won't work then, the whole thing, because there's aversion dressed up as insight that's actually re-solidifying the thing. Then wouldn't you be just applying it to things you have difficulty with? Yeah, occasionally, um, occasionally people get into a very kind of, I don't know what to call it, almost annihilationist mode in meditation. It's really like, um, uh, shoot everything, shoot anything, uh, particularly if it's something I don't like, but even something I like or something, I mean, just shoot everything down. Uh, very common, actually, uh, at times. Yeah, sure. And um, it happens when, you, when once you start discovering this possibility of actually withdrawing the building factors from things. And the mind can get into what we call uh, just a slightly aversive... It's not really that it's this or that. It's, it's almost like just existence and, and the perception thing, just like shoot it all down. And it doesn't feel necessarily, it can, when it really gets going, it can actually feel very, I don't know what the word is, nihilistic and dark, and, and it ends up not leading to a good space at all. But sometimes it's just quite a subtle shading of things, almost just shooting everything. But that shooting can be from a good place, or it can be from a not-so-good place. So all this is quite subtle, but, yeah. Um, so... Of, most of the things you're talking about are beyond my personal yeah. experience mm-hmm. and, and my, my practice. Um, but, um, are they um, mostly description of uh, quite advanced meditators' uh, um, understandings? Because I mean, you mentioned the seventh jhana. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, are these things that uh, mostly someone who has a Say the concentration of one of the yeah. absorptions would would learn about not necessarily. I mean, ordinary. Th- th- there are things that I would say yes for a meditator. Really, when they're beginning to go quite deep, mm-hmm. um, for sure. As an experience, um, y- y- you might have even had an experience of this already, but as I said, not really registered it as such. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of so again, another spectrum is how much fading. I'll get to this in a minute. Um, things could fade just a little bit. A particular experience could fade. But if I sustain that mode of looking, and I, and I do need some degree of concentration to do that, and just everything that comes up, I'll, I'll relate to this way. Everything that comes up, I'll relate to this way. And, I, and I'm able to sustain it. Eventually, the whole uh, thing will fade, and it will go, yeah, seventh or whatever giant. Sometimes, quite beginning meditators have an experience of just, uh, it, you know, everything kind of goes poof, 
and they they end up in the void or whatever what they call the void, and usually it's very scary to them uh, because it's too sudden and they haven't really seen a relationship here. So I'll, I'll get to this in a second, but. What I think is more important is this thing that I said earlier. It's one thread of insight from the deepest, almost the deepest possible insight a human being could have, all the way to just seeing that when I'm really upset about porridge or whatever it is, it's really, really prominent. Mm-hmm. You know, that is, I don't need to be a meditator to see that. Right. So the, the degree, the prominence, the strength of an experience will depend on these things. And it's one, it's one thread. How deep I go, how deep I follow that thread into the you know, opening up of things, uh, yeah, that takes some depth. So I'm talking, about, I'm talking about avenues that are possible for everyone in here, and we've seen whatever we've seen so far, you know, that's fine. But it's something we can just either... Be on the lookout. Yeah, and, and kind of, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll follow this thread now, you know. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a Charlie Chaplin film, The Gold Rush, and it's in the Yukon or somewhere, blowing up another perspective, and he's, he's, they're almost dying with starvation. And in his mind, his friend keeps turning into a chicken, because he's just so hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and he's big, excuse me? And he picks up a hatchet, and, and, and then suddenly the perception fades. But in a way, it's kind of what we're talking about, it's not the sort of... Um, <laughs> Perception becomes foreground, as I was clinging to it, and it's a very solid sort of thing, you know. So we're all butchers? Well, but it's it's a caricature of something I think that happens to all of us, and and slightly less extreme. I'm glad you brought that up. Give me the giggles, excuse me. Could you say something about this this factor of registering seems very important to me, how... So the more you've spoken, the more I've recognised things. But I've not clocked them. Yeah. They've either been boring or there's been always just body tension disappearing. Yeah. And so, but then, and so you say, oh, this happened last year, and nothing like, like, so what? And yeah. just that problem, yeah. just floating around. Mm-hmm. And so how do you register, like, sort of that connection? Because, um, it's very important, so... I support that. Yeah, yeah, so two things. Uh, you're not asking this, but it's important. Some degree of this is a relaxation of body tension, So, it, especially if you're talking about things in the body. Uh, but that's not what I'm talking about tonight. Yeah, so that's not, but that's important to say. It's not just that uh, relaxed body tension. I'm talking actually about a perception, uh, you know, dissolving. So how, by... by um, by looking for it. So when I said there's two modes of insight meditation, one is kind of just hanging out and an insight pops up, great. The other is actually setting up a way of looking and uh, consolidating that particular uh, conclusion in a way. You know, when I cling less, this is what happens, in whichever way I cling less. You know, so actually looking at it and seeing it over again, ah yes, there it is again, ah yes, there it is again. Just like contemplating. Contemplate, yeah, you're deliberately setting up the sights in a certain way. Because if I see this once, as people are sharing, A, I probably won't even uh, uh, extract the insight from it. Um, If I see it once and I've got the insight from it, even that's not going to do anything. I need to see it over and over. Why? Because the habit of delusion is so deep. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same thing with impermanence. It's like everyone's seen impermanence. It's a whole other thing to contemplate impermanence in such a sustained and direct way, you know, day after day, you know, over a while, that you actually, it, it imprints on the heart in a way that really affects the way you live. Because everyone would agree with impermanence, it's not a big deal. 
Everyone would agree. Anyone older than four or whatever. Um, the thing is to get the thing into the heart and into the consciousness in the way that it, br- it brings real freedom into the life. So does that make sense, right? Yeah. Now, if we do this, and I've touched on this before, uh, fear might come up at a certain point, similar to the self thing. When the self quietens, oftentimes for meditators, fear comes up. When the world begins to fade, maybe fear comes up. And again, highlighting, I want to highlight the function of metta practice and samadhi practice as a real kind of resource for uh, softness of the heart, well-being, that enables us to really see these openings in ways that uh, that cushion it, you know, in ways that are really sustainable. And uh, the familiarity with the dying of the self, the the gradual lessening of the self, the gradual lessening of the world... uh, that familiarity, we get less and less afraid. And gradually, uh, we actually understand, through seeing this, because it implies the emptiness of things, we actually understand that what we're letting go of, this sense of world and self, etc., we're actually letting go of empty things. Do do you see? That things we're letting go of are empty. We're not really losing anything. It's It's not real things that we're losing. Anyway, the self and the world always come back. They always come back. The thing is, when they come back, is my understanding deeper or not? But it always comes back. Uh, and but we, because we understand we're not losing anything, we can abandon. We can abandon more easily. That actual understanding that there's nothing here really that I'm letting go of. It allows us to abandon more. And in case anyone is feeling a little unsure right now, remember that the lack of inherent existence of things doesn't mean that they don't exist at all and doesn't mean that they're worthless and meaningless. doesn't mean that. The middle way allows plenty, plenty of room for the heart to be touched by things. So, and a little bit related to Bill's question, what would happen if I went all the way with this and I just kept sustaining this looking this way of looking, way of relating to things, and things just faded and faded and faded. And some of you may have heard the word cessation. Is this a word that you've come across in, in teaching? Cessation? Cessation of perception? Some of you? Well, that's what it leads to. It leads to a cessation of perception, or technically. We'll, we'll come back to this. Some people, uh, especially nowadays in the Dharma, consider that a completely irrelevant and uh, concept and in some circles it's completely unfashionable as a concept the whole idea of cessation the danger is without such a concept i might be left again with just the understanding of things being impermanent uh, or or uh, something like a big awareness having inherent existence something has to go really really deep to to uh, to shake that up Do you, when you say it's do you mean Only in some circles. Some circles are, are saying that you don't have to experience it. Yeah, or that it's completely irrelevant, or yes, yeah. And, and actually, uh, it, it has no bearing on dependent arising or emptiness or anything at all. Yeah. So they, their meditation hasn't. They haven't experienced that level in meditation. Maybe there's a way around well, or something. Well, the know. other thing I was going to say was um, sometimes people report experiencing something like that but haven't taken the insight out of it. So then a person might have 
or so they report, an experience of everything completely, just completely ceasing. Even even the sense of awareness is gone. It's just boom. And um, but sometimes again, a person might pop into that. So I get reports, and yet when you talk to them, you actually see they haven't they haven't actually got the understanding out of it. It's not just a random. You know, it's it's actually why does it cease? Why is it there, and why does it cease? Why does it appear, and why does it cease? That's the understanding of dependent arising, of emptiness, and that's the understanding that will free, probably not just a one-off experience that I don't understand in the heart. Um, so what do we need to understand? We need to understand this fading, to whatever degree, that from the tantrum degree down to more, more and more subtle. Understand the fading means uh, things are dependent on the perceiving mind's clinging and conceiving. So, the story we started with from the Buddha, what does the end of the world mean? This is what it means. And why is it important in the, in, the, in the context of liberation? What does it mean to see the end of the world, the end of the world of experience? I need to see that and I need to understand it. Because understanding it properly tells me about the world, tells me something about the world that liberates my suffering from it. Okay, guys, this is going slower than I <laughs> imagine, which is um, fine. Um, I've got a bit more. Are you, are you okay with a bit more? You okay with a bit more? Okay. Yeah, well, I was going back to the story uh, of the end of the world. What did the Buddha mean? This is what he means. Yeah. To see the end of the world. But I need to see... The end of the world of appearances and experiences. And for all intents and purposes, that's our world, is the world of appearances and experiences. Okay. Um, if I don't understand how the end of the world comes, which also implies how the world comes for me, then I haven't... You know, that's what I need to understand by, going, by seeing the end of the world. Is the end of the world in a moment? Is that what you're talking about? Like deathless in a moment? It may be in a moment, it may be stretched out over time. But basically I need to understand, I need to, eventually I need to see uh, that ending of the world. I need to see this fading. And, and I, need to get, I need to draw into my heart and my understanding the implications of that fading. Of what it says about the whole world. You understand? Why in the ambience? Exactly. Emptiness and dependent rising, two sides of the same coin, two different words for the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. So but when you're completely deep in meditation, and not only does the body disappear, but the mind it disappears too, that's tantamount to the experience that you get when you die. And the fact is, is that it's there all the time. What so is there all the time? That non-existence. Uh, we w can we revisit this? Because it's, it's, again, uh, I, I will give a whole talk about that. What I just want to say tonight was, again, the idea of the spectrum of fading and why it's relevant, and, and etc. So the, what we mean when we say mind is something I really want to revisit. Okay, what does it mean for the mind to fade? Again, there's degrees of that. Um, in terms of death, don't know, you know. In terms of whether that thing exists all the time anyway, that I really want to revisit. Okay, that's, that's a big one. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about grasping. 
grasping. What does grasping mean? Grasping, if we if we talk about the aggregates, grasping will come in as part of the fourth khanda, as part of mental formations. It's a, it's a form of intention, right? Okay, what have we seen so far? Just summing up, the thing depends on my relationship with it, on my reaction to it. Basically, it depends on grasping, right? If if what I've said tonight is true, then the thing depends on grasping. What does grasping depend on? Bingo. Grasping depends on the thing. The thing depends on grasping. Grasp. I can't grasp without a thing to grasp at. Thing. Do you understand, Mark? Thing depends on grasping. I can see that, and I can see it over and over in meditation. But it has to be that grasping depends on the thing. Mutually dependent. <laughs> Uh, you can't have grasping without an eye that's doing the Yeah, it also depends on the self. Absolutely. I'm not saying exclusively on the thing, but d- definitely. Yeah, it depends on a number of factors. Yes, for sure. Thank you. But right now, I just want to highlight this mutual dependency of thing and grasping. So we say, the thing is empty because it's dependent on grasping, but that whole mutuality implies you've got grasping dependent on something that's empty. So it therefore is empty because it's dependent. You've got two empty things <laughs> leaning on each other. Well, there's a sutta when, uh, how can that be? <laughs> That's why, remember, way back, I think it was the first talk, I said, unless your jaw hangs open in amazement, you haven't really understood dependent arising. It's something so radical. And there's, a, there's a lovely sutta where, I can't remember where it is, I'm sorry again, where someone is questioning Sar- Sariputra, and, he's, uh, Sariputta, and he's, he's explaining the links in the very classical way of dependent arising. He goes through, and he goes through, and he gets down to name of form, perception, etc. And, and he, then he says, and perception, what does that depend on? And he says, consciousness, going backwards, the third link. And consciousness, what does consciousness depend on? Depends on name and form. And the guy goes, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. You just said name and form was, you just said consciousness was dependent on name and form, now you're saying name and form is dependent on consciousness. And, and Sariputra says, that's right. Like two sheaves of corn leaning on each other, that's actually too solid an image. Two sheaves of corn leaning on, you take one away, the other goes. The Buddha, actually, if you read, and again, I'm sorry, I don't know where this is, in his most uh, complete report of his night of awakening, Again, he says, and I ask myself a question, what does death depend on? It depends on birth. What does birth depend on? It depends on... And he goes backwards, and he's for the first time in the mythological story, I'm sure it actually was more than one night, in my opinion, but um, he goes backwards, and he sees these connections, and what does clinging depend on? It depends on vain. And he goes back, and he gets to name and form, Nama Rupa, and he says, and what does Nama Rupa depend on? And I saw it was dependent on consciousness. And then I asked myself, and what does consciousness depend on? It depends on name and form. And he said, that, at that point was awakening. So there's something extremely profound. What we're saying is basically consciousness and object, perception, go together. But the implications of that mutual dependency are profound, profound. It's like really sucking the marrow out of that insight. What does it mean to say that? We'll explore this more. They don't exist independently, inherently, by themselves. They don't have a separateness of existence. Um, So here we have grasping and thing, two empty things, air leaning on air, emptiness leaning on emptiness. Mutual dependent arising. Someone, uh, forgotten his name, this monk, has written some very nice books. Um, It's like the left and right side of a whirlpool 
are just actually separated by convention. They're not really there, in a sense. Actually, that doesn't really give a, a sense of the depth of what's, what's being suggested here. Um, still okay? That mind states. Say, so what's equanimity? Equanimity is a kind of steadiness in relationship to what is difficult or fantastic. That's the way we usually. We're not so swayed in relationship to what's difficult or fantastic. But when there's a state of non-swaying, it means there's less push and pull in relationship to the difficult and fantastic. And what happens to the difficult and fantastic? They lessen. They fade. So the very word equanimity ends up not really meaning what it meant originally. Because it's, it's in relationship to difficult or fantastic, but actually difficult or fantastic have gone. Or, say, anger. I have anger. Anger about an object or about a situation actually colors that perception. I mean, noting, most human beings should noti- notice this, even non-meditators. My anger colors the perception of something. But again, without the perception of that thing, without the perception of the object, there's no anger. I actually can't find a mind state separate from the perceptions of the objects of that mind state. The whole thing is kind of one inseparable, I don't know what you call it, blob? (laughs) I'm not sure. There are no mind states inherently. Actually, there are only objects appearing and perceptions if I fill this out, actually including suffering, suffering too is empty. Suffering is empty. Now that may sound like a very dangerous thing to say, because then what would happen to compassion if suffering is empty? But if I see the emptiness of suffering rather than not caring, it actually feeds compassion in the most beautiful way. And how one would explain that, I'm not exactly sure. It's the kind of magic of all this. The more I see the emptiness of suffering, the more compassion comes into the heart. This goes back to the polarities you talked about. In a way, that's one, that's one way of looking at it, but all these ways, yeah, they're all different ways of kind of uh, seeing the emptiness. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah. and, and the fading too, yeah. So Meister, again, Meister Eckhart, a really uh, extraordinary mystic. God is revealed equally in hell as he is in heaven. It's there, this emptiness, same in suffering as it is in bliss, as it is in neutrality. That somehow illuminates a little bit about what you said about the suffering then, because I think my experience of suffering is, is, oh, it's a very accentuated sense of me, isn't it? It's a sense I am in hell, Mm -hmm. I'm locked in somehow. Good. Um, and so it makes sense that if you see that as a kind of temporary thing, as a kind of construction, um, that you feel uh, the pathos of that, the poignancy of that somehow. Mm-hmm. You know. mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and thank you, Bruce, because you also something um, when when there is hell, I am feeling like I am in hell. You know, the sense of self. All these things build each other. You know, so the perception actually builds the self sense as well. The suffering builds not only does self sense build suffering, but suffering builds self sense. Because I am the sufferer. Ah, oh, poor me, I'm going. 
everything mutually dependent, mutually dependent, can't get away from this. Grasping is interesting because when we actually when we actually really look closely at grasping, we actually find out that to a certain extent we're always grasping at something which is not the thing. Have you noticed grasping often involves past or the future imaging of a thing? No. It's uh, is it going to stay? Future of a thing. Is it going to change? Future of the thing. It's not the thing in the present moment. We elongate things in time with a, with a mental image of things. So again, all this is not just to say, hmm, that's interesting. It's actually, what would happen if I began to look at that in meditation, actually be aware of it as I'm looking at grasping? What would happen? Okay. Uh, going right back to the beginning, this duality, which Diana just mentioned. Aversion is in relationship to, or in contrast to, non-aversion. It also is a duality. It doesn't exist independently. We draw that sense out too. Aversion, we could say, is also not separate from greed. Greed and aversion are actually not separate. Have you noticed, when there's aversion for one thing, there's usually greed for another implicit in that. And I just want to get rid of this pain as I seek the non-pain at the very least. It's also that aversion is not separate from the reactions to the aversion. So this goes back to Juliet's, I don't know what it was, thing about fear. We said, well, there's fear of the fear, or aversion to anger. And they, you can't actually separate the anger from the aversion to the anger, or the fear from the fear of the fear. I think you guys are fading. <laughs> you, you can separate them. I mean, if you look, no. Okay, I think you can at first, and then as, as you go deeper, you re- but it's important to be able to separate it, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to soften the whole thing. So it's actually important to, to be able to separate it. And then deeper, deeper, you actually realize you can't actually find a separation there. But it's an important stage to be able to see that we can. Okay, there's a very famous, very important, another Zen teacher called Lin Chi. Someone apparently was asking him how he practices. And he says, well, sometimes I take away the person, meaning I let go of the self and the self view, or not me, not mine, I let go of the self. He says, sometimes I take away the thing, what we're talking about tonight. I see the emptiness of the thing, the emptiness of the situation. Sometimes I take away both. And sometimes I don't take away anything. I leave everything there. Which is what we said right at the beginning. Self, not self, thing and emptiness. They're just ways of looking. And actually in time, a meditator has all those options. All those options. So this fading, just to say, I said, this is to me it's a particularly important avenue for a meditator. Not everyone will go for it, but I, I feel it's very important. We see that over and over, over and over. And this phrase I use, consolidate that insight. The insight being, this thing is a dependent arising, it's empty. Depends on my relationship to it. And as I said, eventually, that coin has dropped, and one can go directly to looking at a thing and just knowing that it's empty. Because I've seen the dependence over and over again, I just say, empty, empty. And that brings a fading. Why? Because my poker chips of ignorance in that moment, ignorance, delusion, means believing in the inherent existence of things. But if I just say, empty in that moment, uh the poker chips are less of delusion.
Do, do you understand? Michelle? I, I missed the first part of the sentence, actually. <laughs> um, Sorry. Awesome. If... If I can see this fading over and over, uh, or whatever way I see the emptiness of things, and eventually I see it over and over until that conclusion is embedded in my heart, I know it, I know it, I know it. I can then begin looking at something and going straight to the, em- the knowing of the emptiness of it, and look at it through the lens of knowing its emptiness. And rather than not me, not mine, or let me see if I can relax the version, I can actually just see a thing and know that it's empty, and hold that lens. And in so doing, because in that moment the delusion is less, the stack of poker chips of delusion is less, it will build the perception less, and it's, it's an even more powerful gear of doing the whole thing. So what I'm wanting to do is, is point out where this is going. I'm not expecting anyone uh, necessarily to be at that place at all tonight, or maybe even on this retreat, and probably for a lot of you not on this retreat. In fact, most of you not on this retreat. But with one thread of insight, and I, as I said, I really want to give you the sense of something that's extremely possible and goes deep, 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 and, and uh, huge in its, uh, in its power to, to transform the life. So these poker chips, I mean, the other side of this business of emptiness is that somehow, somehow we're, we're geared up to have this, these delusions of I am something or other. That's what it, that's what I think in my mind the poker chips are. I'm stupid. I'm mm-hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And in that, in that, you, you just locked into this very sort of solid sense of me. Yeah. And um, well, then you're you're stuffed basically yeah. with something like that. I mean, that's, that's well, no, that's two, two things there, Bruce. So one is the whole point of the Dharma is that you're not stuffed. The whole point of the Dharma is that um, this is what goes on by default habit extremely deeply programmed and powerful and tenacious habit. But the whole point of the Dharma is, is it possible to unbind that habit and learn to actually be free rather than just stuff? So that's one thing. The second thing is, and this to me is very, very important, I've I've mentioned it a few times, to me, the whole of the Buddha's teaching is not just talking about the emptiness of the self. So you say, I'm like this, and I'm such a so-and-so, and I've got these definitions, but also this is like this, that's like that, anything anything in the world, any situation, any uh, thing that I'm grumbling about, but also the elements of experience and the elements that seem to make up reality, uh, space, time, awareness, we'll get to this in more detail, basic things, a feeling, uh, an emotion, all of that, all, we'll get to this, all of it is empty, that's delusion. Delusion is believing in a thingness and a reality of anything, selves included as well as phenomena. Uh, and it's a big, big project to, um, you know, it's, in a way there's nothing bigger, to, to kind of expose the unreality of that in a way that one can actually uh, be free more, more and more. Mm. Yeah. yeah I, I, I think quite new to me. It's just that you keep saying, understandably, uh, this is empty, etc., etc. But what that is liberating us from, it just sheds light for me the nature of those delusions. Mm-hmm. The delusion is something to do with, um, as far as I, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a something rather. It's very easy. You, you kind of, uh, I don't know how it happens, perhaps it's part of ignorance. You end up as a human being, conceiving of yourself in a certain way, and, and you, you get locked into that. Yeah. 
Um, yes, so I'm saying that's not just true about oneself, but it's true of things and the elements of experience as well. Hmm. And absolutely, and that's what delusion is. And, and being locked in it is what samsara is. Because by being locked in it, I react to the whole thing in a certain way, and I just spin the whole cycle, and then the whole thing solidifies. The dharma, in a way, is a kind of process of unsolidif- understanding and unsolidifying the whole thing, and kind of learning not to get locked in that in that cycle of solidifying self and and things of the world. Isn't it? So isn't it sort of also like you need just thinking you know, as a as a baby, you know, you're born and you don't really have a sense of self as such. And then that develops as you, you know, as you progress. So then you have a sense of self, um, but then to be able to, you have to know you've got a self to be able to lose having a self. You know. So, okay, maybe is there a question there? Or? Well, I, I was, yeah, well, no, not really. No. You can't lose something unless you know you have it in the first place. I mean, there's degrees of knowing one has something, you know. Well, you think um, you know. You think you, there, there's you, you being. Think you are a self, but then. I, I, if we go back to what I said much earlier in the retreat, use this concept of spectra over and over. It's like the spectrum of a self. So I can have a real sense of a self-conscious self that I'm reflecting on. You know, this is the self, etc. Or just the notion. You know, an insect has a notion of self. But I don't think an insect, well, maybe, but you know, I don't assume that an insect walks around contemplating its sense of self mm. or defining itself in any ways, but it's there implicit in the consciousness. Well, when you're training in this way, is it... Because it's, it's working at a level of perception, it's sort of a seen one, seen them all sort of type thing around sort of sense... Yeah, so is it like sort of like a scene one, scene more? So, uh, 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 different types of objects, obviously, space and time is a different type of thing, so it's up. Yeah, oh, good, thank so you for like bringing this up. Yeah, so do you remember, this is really important now, thank you, I meant to say this. Um, do you remember um, once or twice I said, for me, uh, for most people, it seems, teaching this stuff, that the most helpful way of going about investigating emptiness is actually going via your suffering, rather than via does the zafu, da-da-da. That's still really important and helpful, and we talked about chariots and, and all that. Um, but if you follow that, what will happen is uh, the, the range of objects that you will see fade, and therefore empty and dependent rising, will increase, rather than getting into a thing of trying to look at a tree and make it disappear. Uh, right now, go go via your actual uh, experience, and particularly the experience that seems to be causing you difficulty. Because you can work, because there's diversion there, you can work with as well. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and certain sense doors are easier than others for most people. We tend, in this tradition, to practice with our eyes shut, which gives us more facility as well with the eyes shut. But um, I, I would really, really recommend not getting, with this whole emptiness thing, it's very easy to go into a well, this is empty, and da-da-da, therefore, like I said, right at the beginning, and getting into abstract kind of, well, if that's empty, then da-da-da-da, rather than actually just following one's own experience of dissolving either the self-definitions 
or this experience or that experience and actually seeing its emptiness becomes very relevant then and one sees it palpably and then, and then that expands and expands and expands rather than going it kind of abstractly yeah so <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> okay. So let's have a bit quiet time. Keep going. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.